Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we have a special episode consisting of three separate interviews. This episode showcases how virtual reality, VR in short, can be used to facilitate, advance, and even transform pain education, management, and research. You'll hear about a few different applications of VR in physiotherapy, including using VR as a tool for pain neuroscience education, VR for phantom limb pain, and VR for research. We also highlighted the current literature related to these applications. Note that this episode is a limited demonstration of how VR can be used in different aspects of pain care, and there are a lot more out there. Interested listeners can refer to the review papers I have cited in the episode description. Timestamps for these three interviews are included in the episode description if you wish to jump around. Enjoy! Hi, Nigel. Thank you so, so much for accepting the invitation to be on Paincast. I'm excited for our discussion today. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Tiffany. My name's Nigel Cowan. I'm the CEO of a company called Reality Health. By background, I was a radiographer. I worked in both hospital and private practice systems in Australia and then went back and did a Master's of Commerce focusing on communication and technology. So I've worked for the last 30 years in healthcare, but in a communications perspective, essentially communicating high science concepts to consumers in a way that makes them more readily understandable. And I come from a certainly a healthcare family. My wife's a physiotherapist, my father-in-law's a doctor, my sister-in-law's a doctor. So always been working around healthcare. Fascinating. Communication is such an important aspect in healthcare and really important to have someone like you to work on enhancing communication from the healthcare professionals to the people that we care for. Now, you are the CEO of Reality Health. Can you introduce what Reality Health is and how it gets started? Yeah, absolutely. So Reality Health started out really as a project to understand the gap between communication of modern pain science principles and the understanding by patients, but also the ability of healthcare professionals to deliver modern pain science concepts in a constructive way. So we started working with Professor Lauren Mosley back in 2019. He's a leading pain neuroscientist and runs a lot of programs around the world educating healthcare professionals, modern pain science principles. And one of the big things we did was we followed up a range of attendees at these conferences and conferences run by organisations such as NOI to understand how they were going a year later. And one of the big things we found was that the clinicians would leave these educational sessions or these seminars really excited about the concepts of modern pain science. But 12 months later, we're really finding it challenging to actually deliver these messages. And one of the big feedback messages we received was that their patients kept responding with things like, have you just told me that the pain's in my head? And this this sort of almost a belief that the healthcare professional really wasn't believing what their pain was all about. And that's where we really started focusing on how could we develop tools that clinicians could use to more effectively deliver pain science concepts to patients in a way that they can understand. Because some of these principles are new for clinicians and new for patients to hear in the first place. And they challenge some of the, um, the long-held beliefs about pain. That's amazing how it got started. I reckon a lot of clinicians will find 
communicating pain science concept. As much as it's easy as clinicians to understand, communicating is not a whole different story. So Reality Health provides an immersive education experience through virtual technology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we use a virtual reality headset to help build in a series of tools that clinicians can use with their patients to not only inform them about modern pain science principles, but use the immersive nature of VR, the way that we can change the sensor input to the brain to help demonstrate some of these principles and bring it to life in a way that patients can relate to and understand. So essentially what we're trying to do is take science-based concepts and communicate them in ways that the everyday person can understand. So using analogies and language that fits the way the average consumer will typically receive information. Mm-hmm. It's a very you know out-of-the-box solution to what you've just described, being clinicians finding it hard to deliver pain education in a way that patients understand it in a way that's fair to their experience and the solution to that being virtual reality. How did how did that come along? Yeah, it's a really good question because we didn't actually start out planning to build this tool in VR. We were just looking at a way to communicate in the most effective means possible. So the attributes of virtual reality that became really appealing was threefold. One, the very immersive nature of the way you can uh, impart information. But number two, in particular, the experiential way that you could do that. So you didn't just have to tell a story, you could create the feeling of the pain system or the protection system turning on. We could put them on a virtual cliff and make them feel vertigo, even though they knew they were standing on a safe floor inside a clinician's room, and we could actually display some of those concepts And the third one was the interactive nature of it. So we can actually have the patient starting to generate movement activities and picking up virtual blocks and doing movement in a way then that helps reinforce those messages as well. So those three areas became really important for VR for us as a way that we could really do this in a really powerful way and an engaging way and in a way that clinicians could use with their patients. Mm. To your knowledge, is Reality Health the first to explore using VR for pain education? Yes, that's good. So VR has been used for many years. You know, it's back in the 1990s, the US military was using VR for post-traumatic stress disorder and education around that. So I don't think we're the first to use VR for, for an educational element. We are definitely the first to use it as a way to portray modern pain science messages and you know, we've worked very closely with specialists such as Professor Laura Mosley to ensure that the content is true to that science. You know, VR is a really powerful tool and you can do it to generate movement activities and those types of things, but movement without context and without understanding of what's happening within the body is, is really where we tried to focus. So, um, you know, we really think that we are the first to bring it to life using these modern pain science uh, at a scientific level. Right. Yeah, there have been definitely a number of studies in the past decades or so on VR for acute and or chronic pain management, but I haven't seen anything regarding VR to bring along modern pain science education. So that's really exciting addition to the pain field. Can you briefly explain how Reality Health delivers this modern pain science education, like the different modules that it has? Yeah, absolutely. So what's important to point out to start with is that what we've done here is create a tool for clinicians 
to use with their patients. So we're not creating the tool that patients would buy and use themselves. So it's a tool for clinicians. And it's to be used within a typical 45-minute face-to-face consult or a virtual consult that a clinician may do. And we've designed the program with six modules, and they're really a short, sharp module. So they only range from about seven to 12 minutes in length. And no more than one module would typically be used within a patient consult. So the goal is to give the patient an experiential learning experience around modern pain science and then get them out of the headset and have the clinician discuss with the patient how that relates to their individual pain. So we really focus on a few core areas. So the first module is really pain science 101. It's that understanding pain. How does pain work in my body? The role of the brain-body connection in the whole idea of the pain system. And we take the patient through some virtual analogies where we get them to, uh, to warm their hands by a virtual fire for example, and they know that this fire is not real. It's a virtual fire in the virtual world. But we find that more than 50% of patients tell us that their hands heat up and some of them even uh, break out in sweat. And that allows us to bring to life, let's understand what's happening in your body at that time. You know the fire is not real, but you're having a physiological response that is over-exaggerated to what the threat actually is. And that's exactly what's happening with chronic pain. And so the first module is really about getting to understand that using analogies like fire, but also the whole idea of vertigo and a cliff and the desire of the body to stop you and move you back from that edge of a virtual cliff. And we relate that back to the protection system, sometimes turning on unnecessarily in the body. We then go on and focus on different modules at later stages where we talk about the role and the importance of movement in retraining the pain system and finding that sweet zone where it's enough movement to actually cause some physiological change, but not too much movement to actually cause an overactive response that might actually result in a patient's flare-up of their pain. And then we roll on to the final modules, which focus on the role of the brain, how we can retrain the brain and the pain system. And then we use a bunch of functional interactive experiences that the patient can engage with, with their clinician, And some of those are focused on pure education. And then some of them are focused on pure movement activities. So one of the beautiful things about VR is that we can make somebody feel in the virtual world is if they're moving more than they actually are in the real world or vice versa. So we have one activity where we get a patient to move a range of blocks and the clinician will video them while they're doing this. And in VR, they feel like they're only moving a little bit But when they watch themselves in the video afterwards, they're actually getting an extended range of movement much further than they would normally be able to do if we hadn't changed the sensory input to their brain. And and there are ways that we can help the clinician and the patient start to get confidence to actually do those important active recovery techniques that sometimes patients who are very apprehensive to move won't engage in. And we know that if they don't engage in active recovery, the likelihood of them improving their outcomes is poor. Right. That's great. It it seems to me that there is a very nice progression from getting the patients to first understand how pain works and then to understand the involvement of the brain and the body system in their pain experience. And then it's like an embodied experience of moving with different sensory inputs. Absolutely. And one of the one of the other opportunities and, and we use it in our program is the ability to bring in graded motor training as well. So we can actually change the threat levels 
across different exercise activities. So we can actually start to use graded exposure as a way to push that recovery process without stressing the physical body at the same time. So again, putting them in environments that they may feel is more threatening and getting them to do the same activity that they may have done previously in the clinic, but pushing them to the next level. So you previously mentioned that this is meant to be a tool used in collaboration with the clinician. Does the clinician have the autonomy to adjust the settings when it comes to these latter portions of treatment and therapy? Yeah, absolutely they do. So um, it's up to the clinician to decide whether they want to use various levels of graded exposure and they can guide their patient through that experience. So they control the whole activity. And you know, that's the important point here. This is a tool for the clinician to use. This is not, you know, this is not replacing the clinician. It's a really important tool to assist them. And, you know, one of the big things that we received significant feedback from the insurance industry here in Australia is that there are over three and a half million patients living with chronic pain in Australia. And there's only about 100 credentialed pain clinicians. So there's not enough clinicians who have significant experience to treat that group of people. But by giving more frontline professionals the tools, we can actually get patients moving forward in the direction by seeing their local physio who might not have done significant advanced postgraduate training in pain, but with consistent, repeatable science-based tools, it elevates their ability to improve patient outcomes. And even some of the literature out there that suggests that even for those clinicians who are able to provide pain education, maybe only about half of the patients only actually truly take up the concepts of modern pain science, and those will go on to demonstrate good clinical outcomes. So this is one of the tools that will probably enhance the proportion of people to understand modern pain science concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important point, right? This is, you know, even when you speak to the most credentialed postgraduate trained pain physicians, these concepts are very difficult to impart. And so the more tools we have, the better. And I think the biggest challenge when talking to patients around pain are all the different versions of the stories they may have heard, right? So if you have a patient with diabetes if they go and see five different clinicians, most of those discussions will use the same language. They'll be talking about insulin, they'll be talking about HbA1c in a consistent way. If a patient with pain goes and sees five different clinicians, they can be told five very different stories. And so the importance of having a common, repeatable language that can scale is really, really important uh, because they start to say, well, who should I believe? Is this a new message? Is it the right message? So being able to do this in a way that's repeatable and consistent is really important to not only health education, but health literacy in general. Absolutely. So Reality Health has been incorporated in a project, Rethinking Recovery. Yeah, that's right. Can you describe a little bit more of that project and what we've found so far? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a study done where we, uh, we worked with a large rehab provider in Australia that works in uh, the return to work space or workers' compensation, we call that in Australia. And they had a program of educational and counselling with patients that they then implemented our VR platform into eight face-to-face sessions with patients. And within those sessions, they used our VR platform to help the patient understand modern pain science principles. And then after the VR exposure, they were given workbooks to be able to reinforce that learning and follow them up. And we saw some amazing results. 
they recruited 128 consecutive patients, so no bias. It was whatever patient came next through the door. And we tracked them over time looking at a variety of measures. And the measures used were pain catastrophizing scores, the EPOC or brain, the brief pain inventory scales. And what we were able to show was after a 10-week process, we were able to see significant impacts in terms of the results. So some of them I can list here, for example. So the, the functional interference index improved by 36%. The task confidence scale, the patient's perception of whether they could do more tasks than they could previously improved by 32%. And then the pain severity index and their own feelings about pain improved as well by 22%. And what we were able to see here was that to take a group of clinicians who hadn't formally been trained in pain science, they were able to achieve similar results to an EPOC-measured multidisciplinary pain program over a six-month period. So 10 individual sessions over eight weeks was starting to be able to achieve the results of some more intensive pain-related programs. And now we're tracking the return to work and recovery of these patients on a, on a longer scale as well. So what we're now seeing in the real world is what the clinical data says, that if you can have a patient understand why they hurt and combine that with functional rehabilitation, they achieve better outcomes than if they don't understand the principles of modern pain science. They don't truly understand why they hurt. And that makes sense, right? You know, for if a patient is still focusing on their back pain because they think the cause is a slipped disc and that's all they focus on, then their ability to engage in and move forward with rehab is likely to be significantly less than somebody who understands what the real cause of that pain is, how the whole pain mechanism works, and then the ability to retrain that system. And that's something we're really excited to be able to see now in clinical data that's coming out, and we're continuing to build up that database over time. Right. So right now what we have is a preliminary set of data. Is data collection still going on or the data is trying to be written up in the manuscript? Yeah. So we've now closed the enrollment to all patients and now we're following up. So about, I think it's about 60% of patients have completed and we're following up now the rest of the patients and we're continuing to write up those results. So I believe that data is being presented at the International Rehab Conference and the XARFA Rehab Conference in Amsterdam in July this year, which is really exciting. Mm. Now, there was already a paper on the qualitative experience of some of the participants in this program. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So that was a separate paper research project by Teesside University in the UK. And what it was really looking at was Whilst VR has been used as an education tool, what we really wanted to look at was how do patients with chronic pain accept the use of virtual reality as a tool in their sessions with clinicians? And, you know, the big things to looking at was both acceptance and the attitudes towards being in VR. Obviously, we wanted to check for any particular adverse findings. Was there any exacerbation or were there any other issues? And certainly that paper has just been published and again, positively, what it showed was that the ability for the patient to grasp concepts and engage with the messaging was enhanced by the use of VR. And that there didn't appear to be any negative effects of VR involvement. It was certainly different. And there were patients in that group who certainly said, wow, this is new. But the overall results of acceptance 
and engagement with the tool were, were really positive. And the findings there, again, really talk to the fact that if you can create immersive experiences, they're much more memorable than if you're being told information on a one-on-one dialogue. Mm, that's great. We can definitely link the article in the show notes for any listeners who are interested in reading the paper. Just a curious question. So Professor Lorimer mostly have had done a lot in promoting and advancing pain education. And one of the pretty famous one being the Explain Pain curriculum. Yeah. Do you have any idea of how reality health will compare to clinicians trying to use Explain Pain? Do you think there will be a difference? And what sort of difference? Yes, that's a really good question. So the Rethinking Recovery Program were using similar tools and had been trained via NOI. So one of the things we're seeing is by giving them consistent and repeatable tools that are more engaging, we're able to enhance not only understanding but recall of those messages as well. The other part that we're doing is that part of the modules actually have Professor Mosley in them speaking to the patient and explaining some of these concepts. And the big feedback piece there was that it It wasn't just the clinician passing that message on. There was now this professor in there as well, and that was providing almost a third-party credibility. So it's it's not just Tiffany telling me about modern pain science. There is somebody else doing this as well, and that made it seem more real and engaging. So certainly at this stage from the preliminary results we're seeing, the effectiveness of those messages and the way they're being accepted by consumers appears to be significantly enhanced. That's very interesting. Do you think in the future there will be different versions of the modules of reality health or this will be this one version continue to evolve over time? Yeah, so it's a good question. So the short answer is yes. We are constantly looking at evolving the platform based on feedback that we received from clinicians and patients. So we have some pilot sites that we regularly go to to receive feedback. We're currently working with the Department of Veteran Affairs in the US around chronic pain in veterans. And so we're looking now at how we tailor specific messages and modules to veterans and are there differences that veterans require to people who haven't been in the military service. And that is something that our hypothesis is yes, There are differences there that we would like to adapt and modify to. So in the future, we see a version specific to veterans or at least tailored to veterans that would be very relevant. Very interesting. Are there any other next steps that Reality Health is currently working on? Yeah, so the final aspect that we're looking at at the moment is working with some very large employers who have, especially let's say if they're in manufacturing fields and have large labour forces on manufacturing floors, One of the challenges, especially when an injured worker goes back to the site at which the injury occurred, was that in itself can be a a thing that can cause the pain to flare up. So one of the things we're looking at doing is mapping the workplace floor and displaying that environment in virtual reality. So effectively, that injured worker can start to do some rehab and return to work virtually before they actually return to the work environment. And again, trying to work in whether that as a graded exposure technique can enhance return to work recovery as well. So that's a really exciting area that we're focusing on. Yeah, that's very new and very exciting and something that you can pretty much only do with VR. That's very cool. What are your thoughts on 
if VR pain education could be the next new wave of providing effective pain education? Like, how do we make it more accessible? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So there's two ways that you make that more accessible. So one is having the availability of these tools in more clinics at that primary care level. So you're not being referred to a specialist, but, you know, can the physio that you're seeing who is working in your suburb get access to these tools? And one of the big things we've seen is the reduction in price of just buying these headsets. You know, four years ago when we started, we were paying almost $2,000 per headset. And we've launched our platform on the Oculus Quest and those headsets are now available for about $400. So we've seen a significant reduction in cost. So from a clinician point of view, that's really important, right? They can now buy a VR headset for about a third of the cost that they would pay for their iPhone. And uh, so that makes it very accessible from the first point of view. The second part of the accessibility is around reimbursement and funding and how we can get both the insurers and the regulatory parties on board to ensure that these products are accessible and are easy to use. So in Australia in particular, but also the US educational tools, for example, there's a clear pathway to how we get them used and regulated in those environments. For us in Europe, it's working through the regulations there. And I think a really important point and something we're really focusing on is that the product here is pain science education as a treatment tool, right? VR is just the delivery mechanism. So like like you use insulin in a syringe, the syringe is not the product, it's the insulin. And that's one of the big conversations that we're having with the regulators. Modern pain science education as part of enhancing treatment outcomes is already established and already proven. All we're doing is taking that and using VR as an immersive tool to push those messages down. And so for us, working with regulators to ensure that we can get speedy approval is one of the big things that allows uh, access to individuals at the grassroots level. In Australia, like Canada, which is a large country, we have a lot of regional or remote patients as well. So we're now seeing the use of telemedicine where clinicians will send the headset to the patient in their home and conduct the consults via Zoom or Skype in a remote manner and can still scale and get the, uh, the benefit to individuals, even though they might not be seeing them face to face. That's wonderful. I'm looking forward to the future developments of Reality Health and how it can be more widely accessible and hopefully seeing that in around Canada, Toronto. Um, are there any concluding thoughts before we end our section? Yeah, I think in all the interactions we've had with clinicians and patients, as well as neuroscientists themselves, there's no one size fits all, right? So the importance of combining modern pain science education with appropriate rehab is absolutely the gold standard in managing patients, right? If patients don't have true understanding of how their pain system works, then you can only achieve so much by the rehabilitation that you may do with them. If we can combine those two things together, that's when we achieve success. And for us, that's what we see as gold standard treatment, um, ensuring that the clinician and the patient have the appropriate tools to understand how the pain system works and then formalising that with rehabilitation that's tailored to the patient's needs. And, and that's what we're really excited about and we're really looking forward to continuing to, to push the barriers on that front. Mm, that's a very important message. I'm really excited for it too. I hope listeners are also equally excited about this. Thank you so much, Nigel. Tiffany, thank you. Really appreciate it.
I hope you enjoyed the interview with Nigel. I certainly did. Before we jump into the next interview, I want to provide a bit of the context for our next VR application for those who may not be familiar with it. Phantom limb refers to the sensation from an amputated or missing limb. Most amputees experience a phantom limb. Phantom limb pain refers specifically to the painful sensations perceived as originating from the missing limb. Now let's dive into the interview. Hi, Megan. Very nice to have you. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, for sure. My name is Megan Crooks. I'm a first-year master's student at the University of Manitoba in clinical psychology, and I'm working under the supervision of Dr. Renee Al-Gabalawi in the clinical health psychology department, and we're working on developing a novel virtual reality program for the treatment of phantom limb pain in the acute care setting, so in the hospital. I know that you've been working on this project for about a year and a half, uh, despite being a first-year master's student. Can you talk a bit more about the project? Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'll start at the beginning. I got involved with the project for my undergraduate thesis. And so in my capacity as an undergraduate student, I helped to develop the virtual reality program for phantom limb pain. So essentially, when I got involved, we were still working on the prototype. We were working with engineers based in the National Research Council in Winnipeg. And we were developing this program based on a theory called graded motor imagery. And greater motor imagery is essentially a three-stage process to treat phantom limb pain, which bare bones is a way to move the phantom limb and learn how to move the phantom limb in a variety of different ways so that you can essentially show the brain that, hey, it's okay that the phantom limb is still here and that doesn't need to produce a pain signal. So graded motor imagery is a stepwise process to do that. So we did that in virtual reality. So my undergraduate thesis focused on just developing the prototype. I collected feedback from people with leg amputations living in the community. And I asked them to just give feedback. They tried all of the different stages just in a single session. And I interviewed them on potential barriers that they foresaw to using this program in different settings, such as their home and in the hospital. Because in the hospital and in the home is where we will potentially implement this program eventually. Because like I said, we want to implement this more immediately following their amputation surgeries. And then after that, I graduated from my undergrad and I went on to my master's continuing in the same project. And I am now conducting a feasibility study for the same program. And a feasibility study is just to say that I am going to be testing the methodology of the randomized control trial that we want to conduct to see if our program is actually efficacious. And it's also to ask people, we're going to be conducting this randomized control trial and this feasibility study in the hospital setting, right after people have their amputation surgery. And we're also asking people as they're using this virtual reality program, whether or not, okay, this is actually realistic to use in the hospital setting and whether or not they would actually like to use this in the hospital setting, whether or not it would be better to implement it in the home, that kind of thing. Because we'll talk more about this later in the interview, I'm sure, but the reason we're implementing it in the hospital is because we want to see if we can actually prevent phantom limb pain from happening in the first place. And there's a lot of great evidence that suggests that early intervention for phantom limb pain can really save you a lot of trouble later on in terms of the intensity. And so since not a lot of people looked into this, this is something that we want to research further. 
Amazing. Uh, I've read a little bit about graded motor imagery and how they apply it immediately post-operative and that helps with long-term outcomes compared to those without. I'm curious, what does virtual reality add to whatever we have already in graded motor imagery? For sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So the idea that we have with virtually sort of administering graded motor imagery is that it allows everything to be streamlined on for graded motor imagery on a single device, which is something that a lot of people had trouble with before. From what I've heard, we didn't conduct an official study on this, but just from the people in the initial community study that I conducted for my undergraduate thesis who had tried graded motor imagery before, it's, um first of all, there's a lot of different moving parts. For example, first stage of graded motor imagery is the left-right sorting task. You have to have the sorting cards to be able to do that. Then you have to know, okay, I need to, when should I move on to the next stage, which is explicit motor imagery, which is just imagining moving your affected leg. And then the last stage is the mirror therapy, which is the hardest part because that usually involves needing someone else to hold the mirror for you. And it's hard to keep up that illusion for the last stage of the mirror therapy because you're moving your leg in front of a mirror and you're like, okay, I have to pretend that this mirrored image is my leg. But it's really hard to pretend that. Virtual reality allows all of these different activities to exist on a single device It allows you to administer all of these different tasks independently with less guidance from a physiotherapist because there could be different threshold embedded in the program that say, okay, now you need to move on to this stage, depending on your performance, depending on what you do. And for the most part, and this is what's most abundant in the literature, is that mirror therapy specifically can be more optimized through the virtual reality because it allows for asymmetrical movement of the legs in the virtual reality program through the use of leg trackers because you could see your legs in the virtual environment, which mirror therapy doesn't allow. And I think intuitively know that asymmetrical movements for the legs are more natural, right? Because, you know, we're walking or we're kicking, like that's usually what we're doing with our legs. And that natural movement is important to getting that illusion that that leg is yours and to getting that sensory motor sort of imbalance in the brain corrected and relief from that phantom limb pain. Mm. I guess maybe it might be beneficial for the audience to hear a little more in-depth of the mechanism of phantom limb pain. For sure. So the theory behind phantom limb pain is that essentially there's an area of the brain called the sensory motor cortex. And in the sensory motor cortex, everything is very neatly laid out. It's called the sensory homunculus, or it's like topographically laid out. So essentially you have one area of the sensory motor cortex that is in charge of, say, the legs, the feet, the face, all the way down, laid out really nicely in the sensory motor cortex. Now you can imagine that when one leg is amputated, that area of the brain that is responsible for the leg, it's no longer receiving any sensory feedback from that area because there's no leg there anymore. So the theory that is the most prevalent to deal with the sensory imbalance, the fact that it's no longer receiving that sensory input, is that the brain gets confused and neighboring regions of the sensory motor cortex, those neurons could kind of converge on that unused area that used to be responsible for the leg. And the brain is trying to make the most use of the space that it has, but it's really doing more damage than good when it does that. It's very plastic and it's trying to fix it. But what that does is it 
sort of confuses the brain and it confuses the sensory signals that are coming in. And that is perceived as pain. And we know this and the theory, the different evidence that supports this is that let's say you have your leg amputated. You could see that when you stimulate the thumb, it actually activates the same region of the brain that used to be responsible for the leg. And there is a correlation between the degree and severity of someone's phantom limb pain and the degree of cortical reorganization that you see in their brain. So that's sort of the mechanism behind phantom limb pain. Okay, so there's no sensory input. Uh, what about motor output? So it's kind of very similar in that way. I, For the simplicity of the explanation, as I sort of combined the sensory motor cortex, but it's actually the primary somatosensory cortex and the primary motor cortex that sometimes is simplified into the sensory motor cortex. But you could say the same for both. So you like the leg, you lose it in the primary somatosensory cortex. It's no longer receiving feedback, so it gets confused. But it's also sort of that the bidirectional process where it's also in the primary motor cortex where it no longer has a leg to send messages to. So then it gets confused. But from my research, I know it's like the primary motor cortex would try to send a message out and then it's like it's confused because it's almost like it doesn't receive a message back through primary somatosensory cortex. It's very much an intertwined process. Right, right. So how does VR or VR-administered greater motor imagery address that problem? So it addresses the mechanism by allowing you to correct for that sensory motor incongruence that exists. So essentially with this lack of cortical organization that this cortex was reorganized, you need to reorganize it back to normal is the idea. And we do see this in the literature that people who successfully treated their phantom limb pain see a reduction in that cortical organization back to that of a healthy control, which is really interesting. So the way that we've seen that we could do this is a variety of different ways. So we've seen that mental imagery alone can allow you to reorganize the cortex. Mental imagery being that you imagine moving your phantom limb without actually moving your phantom. There's also the phantom motor execution, whereas when you actually move the stump muscles that were in charge of the phantom, and you actually move the same muscles and like send the same myoelectric signals. And there's also the mirror therapy, which is where you have that visual feedback of your leg moving and you can create the illusion that your leg is actually still there in the actual space. Graded motor imagery is a combination of some of these components. It essentially has three stages, uh, left-right discrimination, explicit motor imagery, and mirror therapy. And we do this in a stepwise way because you want to start off by reorganizing the brain slowly. If you do it too much too fast, the brain is something that we call like sensitized. There's central sensitization with phantom limb pain. So going too fast too quickly by starting with mirror therapy can actually do more harm than good is the idea behind it. So you start with left-right discrimination, which is called implicit motor imagery, because it's essentially you're imagining moving your phantom limb without even realizing that you're moving your phantom limb. It's implicit. So you're shorting images of feet. It's essentially like the brain doesn't want to focus on the image of the foot that is associated with the phantom limb, because it's like, I don't want to think about that. I no longer have that foot is essentially what the brain is implicitly thinking. So by getting the brain to sort those images, to do that left-right discrimination, you're getting the brain to slowly start focusing on the phantom again and slowly start getting over that sensitization. You can slowly start reorganizing the brain. 
the next step in that process is then the mental imagery, imagining moving the phantom. And then the next step is finally the mirror therapy, where you actually have that visual feedback of seeing the phantom limb and pretending that your leg is actually still there in the physical space. So all of this is meant to reorganize the brain by telling your brain that, hey, the phantom limb is still here. There is a phantom here. You shouldn't just take over the, the area of the brain that is responsible for the leg because we still have a phantom here that needs that space and we need to save that reorganization. That's like a simplified version of how I'd explain it. That's helpful. So now you're conducting a feasibility study. How far are you at for that? Not super far in at all. I'm just starting data collection now. The project was passed between a few different hands. So right now I'm taking on the project Originally, I was going to conduct the randomized control trial for my thesis, but realizing the importance of really making sure of the feasibility first, because we want to actually make sure that this could be implemented in hospital. Mm. So we're continuing to develop the program, and we've only recruited about two participants so far. And so not very far in at all, but uh, it's cool to actually see it start to be implemented in the hospital setting. That's amazing. Now, do you have any feedback so far on how participants or how have people reacted to this VR program? So it's actually been really interesting seeing like the differences and how people reacted to it in the community setting versus the people who are seeing it in the hospital. We did see some issues in the community setting with some technical issues, which inform development. For example, people not knowing how to point and click the controllers, right? Things that maybe we assume that people would intuitively know are not things that we should assume that people intuitively know. So there were some technical barriers that we had to overcome. However, we have already seen that in the hospital setting, there are some participants who are still having some trouble with operating the virtual reality program. So we really got to make sure that we streamline how to use that, how to set it up so that people can actually realistically use it because we intend it for independent use. The other thing that we're noticing in the hospital setting is that people are getting discharged from the hospital very quickly, which is preventing us from being able to um, let people try the virtual reality program all the way to the point of trying that near therapy or limb simulation stage is what we call it in the virtual reality program. Because I sent you a study that you read over. It says that near therapy specifically, if you administer it in the hospital for about two weeks, twice a day, people are going to see reductions in their phantom limb pain at the six month period. But we can't really get people to stay in the hospital for that long because they're being discharged so quickly. It's a difference in the setting. That study was conducted in India. This is conducted in Manitoba where people are just being like getting out of the hospital as soon as possible because of like shortages and beds and everything. Right. So right now we're really brainstorming ideas of how we can overcome that, which is potentially implementing it in the home, things like that. So all about testing. It's really, really for a feasibility study. We are confronting a lot of issues with feasibility right now. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of problem solving, troubleshooting, and streamlining. Yes, exactly. Anything else that you wanted to talk about that I missed? Uh, No, I think that's about it for the project and what I want to touch on for that. There's a lot of moving parts still, a lot of things that we want to problem solve in terms of making sure it's feasible, but I'm very optimistic about the efficacy. So long as that we can actually get people using it for at least that two week period in the acute setting, like after they have their amputation, I'm optimistic that like that study I sent you, that people will be able to see reduced rates of phantom limb pain compared to people who don't use that virtual reality program. Yeah, that's amazing. I look forward to that 
project coming into fruition and seeing that result. So I can definitely link that study in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Benjamin. Thank you for coming on to Paincast. How are you doing? We're great. Thank you. Really excited to be here and have this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, for sure. I can start. So I'm Kyla. I'm a co-founder and the chief operating officer of Silico Labs. I'm also a physical therapist. I practiced for 10 years clinically, primarily private practice outpatient. And I'm also finishing my PhD in rehab sciences at U of T. And my name is Benjamin, and I'm the CEO and co-founder with Kyla of Silico Labs. Also a PhD candidate in the psychology department at the University of Toronto, where I do cognitive neuroscience uh, research into how we learn and remember things in our everyday lives. Though I should say uh, I've been on leave for almost two years now with Silico Labs taking off. So very excited about that. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, well, to manage a startup and PhD, it's truly impressive what the two of you do. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I stay sane. yeah, Kyla's, <laughs> Kyla's, I think, the only one really managing both now. I managed both for a little while, uh, but uh, yeah, it got to a point where uh, taking a leave from the, the studies was almost necessary to keep the company going, so. Mm-hmm. Yep, introduce Silico Labs to us. Yeah, sure. So Silico Labs really grew out of my PhD research. So when I started my PhD in 2017, you know, like I said, I was really interested in studying human behavior in uh, more naturalistic settings. And so, you know, in psychology, we typically will bring a participant into a testing room to put them in front of a computer screen and maybe we'll show them images and videos. And, you know, really what we're trying to do is emulate some sort of real world experience so that we can understand how the brain works in that situation. Now, this is very abstract from the real world. And so it's, you know, with with new technologies like virtual and augmented reality, now we can actually, instead of just putting someone in front of a computer screen and having them, you know, press buttons on a keyboard, we can actually build immersive environments where we can put people into simulated environments of the real world that are very realistic and feel very realistic. But not only that, we can also capture a really rich behavioral data as somebody's in those simulations. So, you know, with the new technology, we can capture eye tracking data, we can capture body movements and all kinds of very high dimensional data that gets at the minutiae of the experience and can give us really cool new insights into human behavior. And so when I started trying to figure out how do I incorporate this technology into my research, I quickly found that there weren't any good tools out there for doing this. So I was kind of left to my own uh, devices and I started you know, developing my own tools to speed up my own research. Those tools were quickly adopted by other people in the psychology department at U of T and then inevitably by different departments outside of U of T, uh, Columbia University, for example, started using the software as well. And, you know, it was at that point that we kind of realized that this was a large problem for researchers. You know, these are tools that people are looking for, and it's research that people want to be doing. It was also around that time, and I'll pass it over to Kyla, that we realized that this isn't just a problem in psychology and neuroscience. It's a problem for a lot of fields. So... Yeah. And so as Benjamin was kind of going through this with his PhD and realizing that there was a need for this kind of research, obviously he was talking to me about it and I was kind of reflecting on the implications for my field. So I'm more in the rehab sciences, applied health space, and kind of realizing that 
you know, there's this big knowledge translation gap with health research. So I think it's estimated that it can take 17 years to put health research into practice, which is kind of insane. Like, I don't know what we're all doing generating research if it's not actually getting applied. But one of the reasons is because a lot of the research we do is based on kind of self-report measures, surveys, interviews, and not to say there's not value in those, but what if we could actually create experimental studies that are mimicking those naturalistic environments? And we can still do surveys and interviews, but now we're getting at some of that implicit behavioral data. So that's how I got pretty interested in this idea as well. And then thinking about clinical practice too, you know, what if clinicians could leverage all of these data streams that Benjamin was talking about and incorporate that into our clinical decision-making? And so that's how I got kind of hooked into the idea. And yeah, we've been building it from there. Yeah. And I guess just to summarize all that stuff, what is Silico Labs in terms (laughs) of all of these things that we just said, you know, we have a software package that we've developed that allows researchers to really quickly and easily create simulations of real world environments and capture really rich behavioral data as participants complete those simulations. And so now our software is being used at academic institutions around the world. I think there's close to 20 labs that are are licensing the software and we haven't actually launched the software. And I think that just goes to show it's been through word of mouth that this is something that people are really looking for. And it isn't a very exciting new field of research um, that we're very excited and grateful to be able to support. Congrats on your success so far. Oh, thank Thank you. you. That's great. So from what I've heard and understand, this is something you've developed because there isn't really something out there that would allow researchers to create uh, simulated experiences in a very user-friendly way. So how have been other VR technology softwares, how have they been developed so far? So typically the research that's done with virtual reality in academic labs is usually done by hiring a developer that actually works with the researcher to identify, you know, what is the simulation they want to create? And then the developer goes off and basically hard codes that. So every kind of interaction, all of that is kind of line by line created. And it tends to only be labs that have the funding to do this, right? It's not necessarily inexpensive to hire a developer to do that. And it also takes a really long time to actually develop those simulations by hard coding. So with our software, again, it makes it just super easy, super fast to create those simulations. You don't need to have any coding expertise. So it's It's been pretty neat to see. Like we've had high school students use it even, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I watched a couple of videos of demo creating VR experiences. And it seems to me just as long as you understand the language of the the names and stuff, you just Mm -hmm. pretty much click what you want, click what you want. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, as we uh, expand and grow the company too, uh, the goal is to create you know, very open uh, community kind of environment where people can, you know, not only use our software to create these experiences, but share that with other researchers. And so that's one of the really big problems with this traditional approach of hiring a developer and having them code a custom application. Once that custom application is developed, it's really difficult for any other research group to go, oh, that's a cool study. I'd like to do a follow-up on that. And I'd like to maybe just change like a few factors Or perhaps I don't even want to change anything. I just want to run a different sample. Like, for instance, the first lab may have run 18 to 35-year-olds. The next lab might say, what do older adults, how do older adults behave in this environment? And what can we learn from them using this simulation? And it's just impossible to do that right now. And it's very expensive. So having a framework where you can create the experiences very easily 
manipulate and share those experiences, it does help this open science effort. And we learn a lot more through community, I think. I'm really excited about this as I hear you say it, because I'm also really you know, a fan of advancing research. And this seems to be a really just like awesome tool to capture a lot of amazing data in very simulated instead of compared to like lab artificial setting. A question more towards Kyla. So you've been a physiotherapist, physiotherapy training, now a PhD candidate in rehab science. Do you think that brought any value to developing silico labs? I think so for sure. I mean, I think I think no matter what I'm doing, I'm always probably going to have that physiotherapist lens just because that's where I'm trained in and that's where I've worked for for so long. So I think thinking about the software as Benjamin's been developing it, he's our developer, thinking about, you know, what do clinicians need? If clinicians were to adopt this tool to create their own assessments, what would they need? And I think you know, a lot of clinicians don't necessarily have a lot of statistical background, right? That tends to be more if you do a PhD or a master's degree that you learn some of those skills. So some of the future directions for us is to actually create data analysis and visualization pipelines. So it's really easy for people to understand the data that's coming out of the simulation. So I think that's going to be really exciting too. Yeah. And just to maybe piggyback a little bit on that, I've learned just like so much through working with Kyla on this because really I, you know, study neuroscience. I study the brain. I don't know anything about biomechanics and uh, how the body works, you know, understanding that, oh, we can actually use this biomechanics to understand this better or to pick up on this. And and I think like that was a, a whole kind of new world that Kyla introduced me to. And I think that really illuminated the, the power of what we're creating and, and the power of that new wave of research that we're pioneering. So yeah, I think we were just talking about um, like bony anatomical landmarks the other day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were talking about the greater trochanter. And so I was teaching Benjamin about all these different. I was like, landmarks. that's just my upper hip. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so just for it to be super clear for our audience, Silicon Labs is not only a designing VR platform, it also has data capturing function. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So when you create something typically in VR, you know, you create an experience, you're not too concerned about exactly what's happening in that experience, um, other than the data that you need to create the dynamics in that experience. And so you might think about this as like, you know, if you're playing a, a video game like Mario, the player can move and they can jump and they can hit boxes, but really like you don't care about any of the data unless it's like an event point that you want something to happen to in the environment. So uh, you're not storing all of the button presses and things like that as somebody's playing the game, but that data for behavioral researchers and anyone that's really interested in human behavior is very valuable. And so with our software, when you create the experience, we do have the infrastructure that automatically captures all of those really rich data points. So we can actually, going beyond the, the Mario example, we're capturing eye tracking data so we can see exactly what somebody's looking at in the environment at any given time. We can also know what's happening in the environment at that exact time. So, and I think EEG is kind of a good example. So brainwave data, EEG systems produce a ton of data. You can have up to 64, 128 kind of streams of data and we can collect this data, but that data, you can't make any sense of it unless you actually know what's happening, what's influencing that data in the environment at that time. Otherwise it's just a bunch of brainwave data. So with our software, if you put somebody into a simulated environment, 
with you know an EEG cap where you're capturing that brainwave data, now you can say, okay, well, at this point in the brainwave data, this person was interacting in the environment with this object in this exact precise way. So now we're actually being able to associate the data, the raw data streams, even heart rate, anything like that, any kind of physiological response to what's actually happening in the environment. And now we can start understanding like, What's causing heart rate to increase? And maybe I'll let Kyla talk to maybe the implications for physiotherapy and pain, but I can imagine that having a better understanding of the physiological responses that people might not even pick up on or might not be able to describe. And I think that that's one of the big things too, is that we're not asking people to give us their brainwave data, you know, as we would ask them on a survey, right? We are just putting them into a situation and capturing that raw data and that, that inherently allows us to capture things that might be ineffable or, or that the person can't actually articulate to the healthcare worker, but we can see that in the data, like, okay, um, you know, this is why that's happening, or this is what's causing that response. Sometimes when I'm sick, Kyla asks me like, well, what doesn't feel good? And I just said, I don't know. Everything <laughs> just doesn't feel good. I'm, I'm really bad at describing my pain. I'm really bad at like, really honing in and having the metacognition to do that. But with this technology, we might not have to ask patients so much. We can just see and gain insights from that. Yeah. I mean, I think thinking of my clinical work as a physio, I mean, I'm constantly integrating all kinds of data stream. I, you know, I'm looking at how somebody is moving. I'm looking at their facial expressions. I'm integrating that with what they're saying. And sometimes those two things don't necessarily correlate, right? If somebody's face is all kind of screwed up and you're asking them, are you in pain? How are you doing? And they're saying, no, 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 I'm fine. Well, you know, you might have to make an inference there, right? So I think the idea with the software and this technology is, is just saying, you know, what other data could we incorporate and how can we make it easier for researchers and clinicians to understand that and integrate it? So, yeah. And that's yeah. One, one of the most exciting things I think um, that we've talked about in terms of that is that it can be a tool as well, where like, you know, the, as a clinician, like you're trying to integrate all that data at the same time, but having, you know, a platform where you could actually capture it quantitatively that can be a really awesome tool for especially new clinicians that don't have the experience like someone like Kyla has of 10 years of seeing these things and picking up on things that she probably can't even really describe what they are. But, you know, that intuition that you get as a practitioner over years and years, that can be essentially given to anyone with technology like this. So you talked about capturing data like eye tracking or brain waves. Maybe brain waves would be useful for something like pain research from a physiotherapy perspective. We're also interested in things like how people are moving, so range of motion, velocity. Is that something that you're developing or something that's already been used? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, with the software, you can capture joint positions, you can capture movement as well. So that can get at the velocity as well, the change between positions. I think um, one thing is like to talk about our approach to, to this. And I think that really what we're developing are the tools to enable people to create these types of solutions that you're talking about. So, you know, before we can create a platform that can give us insights into the movement data, we first need to be able to have a platform that can capture a whole bunch of that data and make it easier 
for people to actually create that kind of solution, right? So we, we talk a lot about how Silicon Labs is a, a system level solution. So it's kind of like the foundation for a lot of these point solutions. So like analyzing range of motion or gait or things like that, you know, it can be applied to all of these different problems, but it just makes that so much easier, more accessible to researchers. More like curious question in terms of like capturing movement data, has it been validated against, let's say gold standard motion capture, like with markers or markerless motion capture? Not yet, but that would be a really interesting line of research. And I think that's part of what we're interested in too, is that VR technology has changed a ton, even in the past year. If you look at the literature right now, a lot of the studies are using the very first Oculus, I think it's Oculus Rift is the first mm -hmm. one or the mm -hmm. first Vive headset. And things have changed so much since then. And there's a lot of, I think, exciting advancements with the Quest 3, the Quest Pro, the Apple Vision Pro coming out. And I think that, you know, now is the time with a platform that's easier to use, mm -hmm. we can actually start to do those studies and do those comparative research. Because I think up until now, everything's just been kind of in flux. Yeah, and I think that's in terms of like using uh, lower cost kind of VR technology. What we should mention is that platform that we've designed is actually allows folks to integrate any sort of technology that they want to use. So if a researcher did want to create a simulated environment, they have the option of putting somebody in that environment just using a headset and capturing the motion tracking data from the headset itself, or they can set up a much more expensive and complex motion capture system, and that can be used. And so this is another really key part of what we've built is that not only can you kind of like do this testing, but you can start actually asking the questions, how does this compare to this? So now you can compare those technologies one-to-one, -one, which was really difficult to do as well. So it allows for folks to test those very foundational kind of questions. So that's really exciting as well. You mentioned how this is a system level solution and that's super wonderful. What are your thoughts on applying this into physiotherapy specifically in pain care, pain management, or pain research? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of applications and there is actually a fair amount of literature on VR for pain. So we can chat about that as well. But I think as it relates to, again, if I put myself with my clinician hat on, I think these assessments and treatments need to be validated in the literature before me as a clinician would adopt it in my practice. So I'm excited to see, you know, more of this research being conducted to create those validated tests and treatments. Yeah, let's jump into it. Uh, any thoughts on VR for pain? Yeah, I think one of the more probably obvious applications and an area that's been fairly well researched, really the effect of distracting people in a virtual environment. Um, so analgesia, so redu reduction of pain through distraction. And so by that, I mean, placing somebody into an immersive environment that um, basically all of the kind of inputs that are going into their brain overwhelms those pain signals. So they they don't perceive the pain kind of as strongly. Um, Tiffany, I don't know, have you been in VR? Like, do you have a VR headset or... I don't have a VR headset, but okay. I think I've have been it sometime in my life, one time. Yeah. Kind of. It's it's really quite amazing, I have to say. Like we've put the VR headset on, you know, a bunch of different people, and it, it can be quite immersive. Um, and you can create these really, really interesting experiences and simulations. Um, so that's definitely one application. Um, and really, again, it's that kind of overwhelming of of the brain and the senses uh, mm -hmm. to help reduce the pain. 
Um, another kind of interesting area um, in research in, with VR is more around the sense of embodiment. And that's not specifically for pain necessarily, although there's good applications there. Um, but it really is about having the, the sense of one's body in that virtual space um, and allowing the integration of different sensory signals. So be that visual, tactile, kinesthetic. Um, and again, if you're thinking about VR, you're in this immersive environment, you can really manipulate those different variables. So one interesting application is VR for phantom limb pain. So instead of using mirror therapy, for example, you can use the virtual headset and recreate that limb and change how that is perceived. Yeah. And I think that where it becomes really powerful in that regard too, is it, it does provide an environment that can be very highly customized in real time by the actual participant. And so this allows you to create rehabilitation programs or pain programs that are highly specialized to the individual and understanding, you know, where the individual differences lie and being able to give the participant or the patient the ability to turn those knobs where it best suits them. And this is something you just can't do in the real world. I think it's a very powerful aspect of the technology. A couple of other applications for VR for pain as well that I, I came across, which was kind of interesting. So another one of the, the ways that VR has been studied for, for pain is actually the ability to shift the user or participant's focus. So I was talking before about the distraction analgesia, how the participants in the VR headset, that immersive experience is happening. That's a pretty passive experience. What you can do instead of having it be passive is to make it a bit more active. So actually have the participant or patient performing perhaps little mini games, so tracking objects in the environment. And so that might be more appealing for certain patients that want to be a bit more engaged in their therapy as another option. That reminds me of the kid at the doctor's office with the needle, right? You have that lollipop that is distracting them. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's other ways as well. You know, I've, I've read some studies about basically shifting kind of the affect or the mood. So actively trying to, for example, um, build skills like you know, deep breathing, inhalation, exhalation, um, being able to modulate that in the environment too, and encourage building of those skills. I think some of the questions around that are, how does that translate to the real world where you're not wearing a VR headset? So I think that's, you know, maybe a question to answer. That's actually interesting because I feel like it kind of relates. So we have done some stuff for training programs and things like that as well. And we know that VR isn't going to maybe replace the in-person kind of initial training that you really need to have, like what you're doing in the real environment. One example is we created a training simulation for Toronto General Hospital for the ICU of donning and doffing of PPE equipment. Now that didn't replace the initial fit testing of the masks or anything like that. But what it did is it allowed a VR headset to be used to do refresher training at a much more frequent rate amongst the care workers. So when Kyla talks about breathing exercises and things like that, I know personally when massage therapist or the physio gives me exercises to do and I come home and I can sometimes like fall off that. But perhaps if I had a game or I had some sort of report mechanism that I could just go in and I knew I was doing it correctly, I think that's also, you know, really important that these devices can tell you when you're doing something incorrectly and give feedback that makes the experience 
I think, much more accessible to people. And it allows them to then practice and habit form a lot easier. I think that that's a really nice parallel to some of the other applications. Yeah. And I think that's where, again, as a clinician, it's sometimes hard for people to continue on with their exercises at home and they're not able to come maybe as frequently to physiotherapy. So as the VR technology gets more and more affordable, I think it is going to become more widespread. So perhaps people can engage in their rehab from home Mm -hmm. um, and have a feedback mechanism with their therapist. That would be really great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Going into telehealth too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely see that potential. Mm -hmm. What are some next steps, exciting steps? Lots of exciting steps. Yes. So right now, you know, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, you know, we've been uh, beta testing our software for about the last year and a half, I guess it would be. Um, And so with labs all around the world. And so we've gotten, you know, very overwhelmingly positive reviews of our software, people like using it. And so we're a very small team. So the next step is really rolling it out on a larger scale. And and like I said, we haven't put the software out for people to actually license. It's been through word of mouth that people have reached out to us and started using the software. So one of the big things for us right now is focusing on creating the user resources so that folks can go to our website, download the software and start using it and know exactly how to use it themselves and start creating things. And so once we do that, then it opens up capacity for Kyle and I to go and actually start telling the world about what we built. And so that's really our main focus right now. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to the OPA conference coming up in March. I'm actually going to be a panelist on a discussion about technology and physiotherapy. So I'm really excited about that. And how it came about was kind of organic. One of the professors at U of T who knew what I was working on with Silico Labs, somebody from the OPA reached out to them and said, hey, we're thinking of doing a panel that's focused on technology. Do you know anybody? And it kind of spiraled from there in a good way. So I've been kind of helping to formulate the panel. And so I'm really excited about that. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Just for clarification, OPA stands for Ontario Physiotherapy Association, for those who don't come from Canada. But I will be there and see you there. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on VR for Pain. I hope it got you excited about the potential of VR as a clinical and research tool. It's been a year since I posted the first episode of Paincast, and my vision for Paincast is still the same. I hope it can be a useful platform to bring together researchers, clinicians, and students to facilitate discussions and knowledge translations in pain and physiotherapy. I can't express enough gratitude to those who are supporting this podcast, and this includes you who are listening. Please continue to support by subscribing and rating it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy. Thank you.